Well, the word amen means let it be or let it be so, and Steve just made it really hard for me to say amen at the end of that when he thanked God for humidity. But anyway, um, you know, there it is. We're in Bundaberg. Hey, uh, quick question. Does anyone ever have an idea that seems really, really good in their head, uh, and then the reality kicks in and it's not a great idea? Yeah, quite, I've never experienced that. No, um, the, <laughs> the, the idea of analysing four carols over Christmas seemed like a really good one to me. And then the reality of actually doing it is so difficult. But anyway, here we are, and, uh, and I figure if we're going to go, let's go big. And so we're starting this morning with the Hark the Herod Angels, my favourite carol. And it's my favourite carol because it is full of great theology. It's got great doctrine. The reality is, like all carols, they can be often sung without considering the richness of their meaning at all. I wonder when the first time is you can remember singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You might have to cast your mind back and keep casting back for some of you for a while, right? So you've got to go right back a long way. And I remember as a child, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I do remember going to carols where we had real candles uh, and playing with the wax and pouring it on your fingers and things like that. Uh, but I do remember singing these songs, but just believing they were what you did at Christmas, never considering at all what they were actually saying. I think carols for many people create a warm, nostalgic feeling, but often no more than that. So we want to have a look over the next few weeks at what these songs are really and truly telling us. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is an English Christmas carol that first appeared in 1739. Okay, so we're going back a little while in a collection of hymns and sacred poems. The original words were written by the famous hymn writer Charles Wesley, brother of John Wesley. Wesley had written the original version and it was entitled Hymn for Christmas Day. There you go. Straight up, it was always intended to be a Christmas carol. And it had the opening line, Hark, how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. There's a word some of you are probably not awfully familiar with, welkin, W-E-L-K-I-N. It's an old English word that referred to the clouds or the heavens. So in short... All the welkin rings was a reference to angelic hosts based on Luke 2.14, which tells the story of angels glorifying and worshipping Jesus with shepherds. Now, many of you might know George Whitfield, who was another great evangelist and contemporary of the Wesleys. And Whitfield came along and decided that all the welkin rings didn't work that well and he changed it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So there you go, right back from then. A little while later, as someone took a cantata from Mendelssohn and they added that music from Mendelssohn's cantata to Hark the Herald Angels and boom, there is the song as we know it. Now our problems begin in teaching us about this. 
In Wesley's original version, which had four verses, no one ever sings the fourth verse, you can look it up online if you'd like to read it, in his original four verses, he cited over 40 scriptures. So as you begin to pull apart this carol, uh, it's deep, which is a good sign, but there's a lot of work to do. I feel like we could have done four weeks on just Hark the Herald Angels. But nonetheless, we're going to work through this carol verse by verse, and we're going to look at some scriptures that were cited. So we're just going to add some in there. And as you'll see, I've put a little slideshow today, PowerPoint, uh, that's going to have some scriptural references there. Side note, I want to tell you about this incredible invention in the life of the church. It's really cutting edge. It's this, a Bible case. Now, you don't see them anymore. You can probably find them in historical museums, but people put their Bible in them and a notepad and a pen, those things that you write with, right? And so, the beauty of these is when you sit in church and you get stuff like this with Bible references there, you can pull out your notepad and you can go, hark the herald angels, and you can actually write down the Bible references as we go. These are amazing. Now, those notepads... You can throw them out when you're done. You don't need to hang on to them for posterity. You know, I'm going to pass it down my family line. But the writing down often helps cement things in our mind. Okay, so it's really, really helpful. I would love to see more of us. I, I had to run around the church this morning quite quickly to find somebody who had one of these. And when I said, can I take this? By the way, you're not going to get it back for the sermon. The first thing they said was, can I get my notepad out? Right? I love that answer. That's a great answer. Okay, so can I encourage you for sermons like this one? Take notes, it's a great idea. All right. To start with, if we did a quick survey of the names given of Christ in the original four verses, here's what you would have just to begin with Christ, King, Lord, Prince of Peace, Son of Righteousness, Everlasting Lord desire of nations, incarnate deity, and Emmanuel, right? All of those with deep meaning, deep understanding, and all used in this carol, okay? So we have a depth of meaning here that we need to have a look at. So with that brief bit of history, let's begin to pull apart what this carol means. Verse 1, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So the first verse we're going to look at is Luke 2, 13 to 14, which is what inspired the writing of this carol. So Luke 2, 13 to 14 says, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favours. Now, we never actually see that they're singing, by the way, in this uh, particular verse, but it inspired Wesley. And I think what Wesley pictured was us with the angelic host proclaiming, praising, worshipping the birth of Jesus. I think Wesley wants you to picture yourself in that angelic choir, the whole of heaven proclaiming the worth the worthiness of Christ. Why? 
Well, he tells us, doesn't he? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So this is what the birth of Jesus meant. All people, every single person in this room, every single person who has ever lived is born a sinner, separated from God by our sin. Nobody in all of creation can reach God because sin has separated us from him. No one will get to God by being a good person. God's standard is not for your good to outweigh your bad. God's standard is not to be a good person. God's standard is not to have good karma coming my way. God's standard is perfection. Perfect obedience to his will as the rightful creator, king, and lord of all. In short, all that existed between God and man was hostility. God's wrath on sin ready to be poured out on people who have rebelled against him. And the angels declared peace on earth. Why? Well, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. This is what Wesley was bringing us to, right? God and sinners reconciled. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. To reconcile means to restore relationship. And Jesus did this by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, therefore reconciling you to God. Only through the debt of your sin being paid by Christ can you be reconciled. Okay? Is there any wonder? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Jesus, the reconciler, was born. What do you do from there? Where do you go from that reconciliation church? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the sky. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. That's the only response, isn't it? Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. That the angelic host proclaiming the glory of Christ and in Wesley's mind, we're there with them proclaiming joy as well because God has reconciled us to himself. He's paid the penalty of our sin through Jesus and our response should be joy, absolute joy joy that our sins are forgiven by what Christ has done. And it should result in exuberant worship, right? Joyful worship. Because God and sinner has been reconciled through Jesus. 
This is what we're learning in verse 1. Of course, it also represents a scripture. Luke 2, 10 to 12, the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of what? Great joy. That will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Okay, good news of great joy. God and sin are reconciled through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 2, we move from declaring what Christ is going to do to who Christ is. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Like I said, who he was, what he was going to do to bring reconciliation to who he really is, Christ by highest heaven adored. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says this, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, everywhere will bow. Jesus is Lord. Okay, this is the strength of what this is telling us. What about everlasting Lord? Well, I'll give you a prophecy coming from the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 9, 6. Okay, so a great prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. All right, the eternal Lord, the eternal King, the eternal ruler, this is who Christ is. By the way, let's just get something out of the road here. I am going to be a sweaty, sweaty mess by the end of this. You're going to see it pouring down my face. We'll all accept that and, uh, and let's move along. Right, so that's who Christ is, the eternal King, the eternal Lord, the one who existed in heaven forever. Christ had no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal. How does your brain do with something not having a beginning, by the way? Not well when you try to think about it for a while. But that's who Christ is. He is God eternal. Late in time. Behold him come. We know that the prophets and all those close to God in the Old Testament longed for the coming of the Messiah. Generation after generation looked forward to, hoped for, was just desiring the coming of the Messiah who would set them free. Because the law brings condemnation. Because is the law bad? Is the law bad? No. But it only brings condemnation. Why? Because we can't keep it. The law's not bad. We are. 
And so year after year in the Old Testament, as they sacrificed yet another animal, because that's what they understood, blood had to be shed to pay the penalty of their sin, year after year after year, condemned by the law, they longed for when the law would be written on their hearts, they longed for when they would be set free. Year after year after year. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. I've told this before, the last days is from the time of Christ on. Why? Because it's all when it changed, it all came to the new covenant made in his blood. Right, The last days, the time of the Messiah that everyone longed for and we get to live in it. No longer condemned by the law, no longer required to make sacrifices. Why? Because the final sacrifice was made by Jesus. And so we live in the time of joy. That's where we live. Don't get me wrong, we battle sin in our lives and we should battle sin and we should confess our sin, but that cannot take away our joy. Because we're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Now, this is crucially important to the gospel. If Mary was not a virgin, then Jesus had a human father. If Jesus had a human father, then Jesus would have been born of sin. Now, some of you are going, that raises a slight conundrum. Does that mean Mary was sinless, like a Roman Catholic would proclaim? No, Mary was not sinless. But we read consistently in scriptures, through Hebrews, for instance, that sin came through one man, right? And through one man comes life, Jesus. In the Garden of Eden, we know Eve ate the fruit, then Adam ate the fruit, and then their eyes were opened after Adam ate the fruit. Then God comes looking in the garden and he yells out to who? Adam. Right? Adam. Adam had responsibility and it hung on Adam's shoulders to take responsibility. And in that beautiful moment for all men forevermore, what did Adam do at that crucial juncture? Oh, that woman you gave me (laughs) threw his wife under the bus. So, yeah, men, don't be Adam. All right. So that's why, why we have that, okay? So Jesus had to be born of his heavenly Father or he would have been born of sin. So he had to be born free from sin so that he could live the perfect, sinless, obedient life. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Of course, we read about that in Matthew 1, to 25. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, remember, every time we sing those words up there, Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus, okay? So Jesus had no earthly father. Veiled in flesh, 
the Godhead see. What an incredible statement. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What does that mean? John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so Jesus, fully God, fully God, always existed from before time began and always will exist. By Him, all things were created through Him and for Him. That's who Jesus is. And the Word became flesh, veiled, covered in flesh, the Godhead see. My goodness, that should never not blow our minds, that God took on flesh, right? Covered in flesh was the almighty creator. This is why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because Jesus was God in the flesh. He builds on his argument, hail the incarnate deity, Right, this incarnate is the taking on of flesh, deity, God taking on the flesh, God dwelling in bodily form. And we see that so clearly in the scriptures. Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. How's that for a statement? The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Christ, that's who he is. God in fullness in the form of a man. That is who we worship. However, it's important to note that we believe in what is known as the hypostatic union. Who's familiar with the term hypostatic union? Nerds. No, um, look, it's a theological term we don't use very often, but the hypostatic union refers to the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's the hypostatic union. That's all it means, okay? It is, I think, the most difficult theological concept to grasp. I think it's harder than the Trinity, okay? How can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? That is a difficult concept, right? But we must believe in it to hold to who Jesus was. He must be fully man to be obedient to the law and so fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. He must be fully God in order to be a sacrifice worthy of paying the penalty of all sin for all time. He must be fully God. He must be fully man. That is the hypostatic union. If he's fully God and not fully man, then he didn't fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. If he's fully man and not fully God, then he could have saved himself and himself alone. He must be fully God and fully man. That's the hypostatic union. So our writer here has said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. He is fully God. And if we don't talk about something else, we're going to have a bit of a problem here, right? Because we're going to ruin the hypostatic union. So what's our next line? Pleased as man with men to dwell. 
right? He took on flesh. He was a man, pleased as man with men to dwell, pleased as man with men to dwell, right? He took on flesh, fully God, fully man. Super, super important theological concept. Now, I haven't put a scripture there, but you can do this yourself. Think about the scriptures that prove to us Jesus was really a man. And there are lots of them. He was born. We read about his birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day. At 12, he was found in the temple. What's the important thing about that? Well, he was growing. He's now 12. He was a baby, and now he's a boy. Like every man ever born, right? He's a man. We read about Jesus eating. We read about Jesus drinking. We read about Jesus being nailed physically to a cross. Fully God, fully man. Right? The hypostatic union in our song picks up on this perfectly. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which we've already seen means God is with us. Ark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. It's incredible, isn't it? Verse 3, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Now, we looked at that again in Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He came from heaven is what it means, heaven-born, right? He comes from heaven. Now, hail the Son of Righteousness. Now, I don't know what our words are going to be when they put it up to sing this carol shortly, uh, but it should be spelt S-U-N, okay? So, in the original version, it was spelt Son, as in that big fiery ball out there that's way too hot at the moment, Uh, Son of Righteousness, not S-O-N. Why does that matter? Well, it's actually a prophecy coming from the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, he spells S-U-N. And why does he do that? Well, it's obviously a metaphor for the Messiah. So it is referring to Jesus. But the point he's making is this. The coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, will be like when the sun rises, casting its light and warmth upon all. That's his illustration. That's why it says, Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the storm. So when we sing this carol, you're all going to jump around like, no, not, not really. Um, has anyone here ever been caught out, maybe? You know, those of us who have unreliable boat motors and you're caught out in the ocean at night and it's a bit of a storm and and there's rain or maybe you've been out hiking in the bush or just somewhere you've been caught in the darkness and it's it's scary. You you imagine noises are something more than they are. You, You are deeply fearful of what might be. The night seems uncertain. And all it takes is that first glimmer of dawn and hope is kindled in your heart. That first glimmer of dawn, that first glimmer of light 
and warmth is enough to change our attitude. The writer of Malachi says, when the Messiah comes, he will be like the sun rising on the darkened world. A world of flesh, a world of sin, a world of rebellion. And when the Messiah comes, it'll be like the sun shining its warmth straight through the darkness, bringing hope to all who put their life in his hands. That's why he goes on in the song to say, light, light and life to all he brings. The son of righteousness will bring light and life. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life, the sun of righteousness. What Jesus says about himself here is that the Christian can never be caught up in the darkness of this world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He means that in our darkness that might get thrown our way in the world, through health, through the sin that might affect us, through the sin that gets forced upon us from uh, sin, other sinful people, whatever it might be, Jesus says, if you've experienced the light of the Son of God giving you life in His name, nothing can take that from you. The light of the Son of God will be with you always. Risen with healing in his wings. This is back to Malachi's prophecy that Jesus will bring healing to all, healing from the sin of this world, healing from death and decay. When Jesus rose, he conquered sin and death, and those who are his have risen with him and will have life forevermore. Mild he lays his glory by. Again, it should never cease to amaze us what Christ was willing to do to pay the penalty of your sins. Philippians 2, 5-7 says, Adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, in other words, he did not consider his godness something to cling to, to stay in heaven, but he came to earth to deal with our problem. All right, this is who Christ is and what he did. And again, why did he do it? Why did he leave the Godhead? Why did he take on flesh? Well, he was born that man no more may die. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Ever met someone who's held in slavery by the fear of death? I know people held in slavery by the fear of death. They're, they're petrified by it. They're doing all kinds of health things. They're doing all kinds of new, you know, take this pill made from an iguana's foot and they're eating that because they're like, it's going to make me live forever. And they're just doing all this weird stuff. Why are they doing that? Because they are held in slavery by the fear of death. 
And our writer says, hang on, hang on, when you've met the son of righteousness, when you realize he's died and paid the penalty of your sin and he gives you life in his name, you are set free from the fear of death, right? Now, sure, we still might want to be healthy and that's a good thing, but we're not consumed by it because we know the moment we die, we wake to see Christ face to face and in an instant we'll be made like him. And it changes everything. Everything. And that's the gospel. And it's here in this wonderful carol. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Born to raise the sons of earth. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Okay, so Jesus died and he was resurrected and those who put their faith in him are resurrected with him. Life through Christ. Finally, born to give them second birth. John 3, 3, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Church, in a nutshell, we are called with angelic hosts to worship Jesus. For God took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary to reconcile God and sinners through his blood. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, died so that you can live forevermore. So joyful, all you people should rise as we join the triumph of the skies. And we proclaim with all of our hearts, right, with everything we've got, glory to the newborn king. Because we have life forevermore in his name. I pray that you know the life-changing son of righteousness and the difference he makes when you are set free from the fear of death. I pray you repent and put your trust in him. I pray you can rise joyfully and sing of his worship from now until the day you behold him and then forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you inspired, you worked to inspire a man like Charles Wesley all that time ago to write this wonderful carol that sole purpose is to worship and give glory to you. Lord, we pray that as we sing this song, we pray it gives us joy to think of what you've done, joy to know your willingness to step down and take on flesh and pay the penalty of our sin. Lord, may we worship you exuberantly this morning. We praise you in your precious name. Amen.